Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 82, The Forager's Garden with Samuel Thayer. Samuel is a wild foods expert and a really interesting guy. Uh, We are thrilled and honored to have him on the show, where we discuss such things as why Into the Wild, the movie and book, lied to you. (laughs) No, for real, they did. Also, we talk about why you actually get more productivity in a temperate climate than in a tropical climate. And we talk about ramps, uh, how you can uh, very, very easily uh, sustainably harvest the bulbs. Samuel has been doing a study on this for a number of years, and he talks about that. We talk about bitter nut hickory uh, and how you can get a bunch of calories uh, from hickory oil by pressing hickory, uh, bitter nut hickories especially. And we talk about how many calories it takes to exist. Um, it's a really great conversation. I think Samuel Thayer is one of the coolest people. Uh, I've loved his books since I found out about them in the... Uh, the aughts um and uh well i hope you enjoy the episode also um if you have gotten a horror reading from me a horror reading from me um and you have any uh feedback please let me know please email me uh let me know if like i got it right if i got it wrong uh that kind of stuff i'm i'm it's a learning process for me also, don't you know? If you don't want to, then don't. But uh, if you do have some feedback, please let me know. And uh, if you have not gotten a horary but you do want one, we have until the end of June, so just like uh, a week, I guess, uh, where I'll be accepting free questions. I'll give free analysis for a question. So hit me up at info at plantcunning.com. Okay, on to the episode. Okay, so today on the Plant Cunning Podcast, we have Samuel Thayer. This is really exciting for me. Uh, Sam is one of the premier uh, wild food experts. Um, His books, Forager's Harvest, Nature's Garden, and Incredible Wild Edibles are some of the classics. Um, You know, he's like the Yule Gibbons of of the 20th, 21st century. Um, So I'm excited. Um, Sam, how are you today? I'm feeling great. Good. Awesome. So usually to start these, uh, these shows, we, we ask, uh, what brought you to the plant path? So yeah, what brought you? It's a little bit hard for me to uh, say because I don't remember really not being on that path. Uh-huh. Um, but I would say that the household I grew up in was uh, angry and a little bit hungry and I left the house to get away from the anger. And I also found I could satisfy my hunger and allowed me to be away for longer. So uh, outdoors was my refuge and mm-hmm. it just was the, the place of comfort. And when I realized that I could eat stuff that I, I could find out in nature, it gave me a pathway to being out there as much as possible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, it seems like, well, for me, being out in nature definitely helps uh, relieve anger. I don't. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, when, when you're by yourself, uh, there's, 
there's not all there's not that much emotional room to be angry and when your senses are flooded the way our senses are supposed to be flooded with all the signals from nature there's not much space in your brain to to be angry either hmm. yeah yeah that's so true it, it's 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 so wonderful to be flooded with with uh with information being out in the woods there's there's so many levels of activity going on you know it's not like a, a city block or a house or something yeah, and it's not like a screen where everything's happening on a few square inches. It's on all sides of you, and it's all all sorts of stimuli. Yeah, yeah, and the the, the hearing and the smell and the the touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you were just a child when you were starting to discover wild foods. Like, how did you know that you could eat um, certain foods from the wild, especially in like this dominant culture of us? you know, being so afraid of wild foods in general, how did, like, what plants were you first attracted to? How did you know what you could eat? Well, I think there's a lot of whispers that go in one ear and out the other. Um, When I heard those whispers, I heard them loud and I didn't Mm. forget them. I remember, um, you know, my grandfather telling me what a black walnut was Mm. and that was it. He just had to tell me once I was four or five (laughs) and I remembered you know, for the rest of my life, started eating black walnuts, cracking them on the sidewalk with broken bricks that I would find. Oh. Um, and, uh, my, you know, I was told what a butternut was when I was probably five or six years old, and I never forgot that. But there was a lot of things that I came to somewhat intuitively. We had strawberries in the garden, or my neighbor had strawberries in the garden. And so when I first found wild strawberries, I, I recognized right away, I thought that's a wild strawberry. And, uh, you know, started eating those, um, you know, same with raspberries. Uh, there was several people in my neighborhood that had raspberries in their garden. Um, and when I found wild raspberries, I knew right away what they were. Then when I was 10 years old, I started, I discovered that there was books on this topic and that really opened up a lot of possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. I had a similar background when I started when I was about nine, um, too. And, and yeah, a lot of it's very intuitive, you know, like it's a berry, it smells good. It tastes good. It's, you know, it's good. <laughs> and I think it's easier to learn at that age too. you like, your, your brain's more malleable. So like, you just have to be shown once. Yeah. And if we don't have, I mean, I don't encourage people to just go out and just try random things. Yeah. That's but, um, when I was a, when I was a kid, I, I tried different things and yeah. I, I think there's some intuitive sense of what is safe and not safe to try. And I'll go out on a limb here and say <clears throat> that if you find a berry and it tastes delicious to you, it's edible. Um, I've tasted every poisonous and non-poisonous berry that grows in Eastern North America that I've ever found access to other than poison ivy berries. I haven't tried those and, and poison sumac. But, um, you know, I've tried bane berries, probably the most toxic berry. They taste really bad. Uh, I don't know of any berries that are poisonous and taste really good. Um, so, um, our ancestors figured this out originally through that process. And there are, you know, there are places where this doesn't work. I mean, you know, there's things in the carrot family, water hemlock does not taste particularly bad. I I say that having tasted it, not eaten it, but tasted it. Um, but it's extremely poisonous. So that's, that's a dangerous, uh, strategy to apply generally, but, uh, I did when I was a kid, I tasted things and there were things I started eating where I can't even remember how or when I learned them. 
Yeah. <laughs> gout weed was one of them. You know, we had gout weed um, in our neighborhood in several places. And, and I started eating that when I was probably five years old and I didn't know what it was. And I ate it for my whole life. And I was probably 22 years old before I figured out what it was actually called and confirmed that it was a known and well-established edible. Hmm. Cool. So, yeah, so don't you, follow that path. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, um, did you mostly learn just from your experiences, like you're describing as a kid um, and from books, or did you have any particular teachers or mentors on your path? I did not have any mentors on my path until I was um, about 16. Hmm. And I dated a girl in high school whose dad was into foraging and so I learned quite a bit from him. I still, at that time, I already knew more than him and I taught him a lot of stuff, but I, I did learn some stuff from him. Hmm. Um, my grandmother was very good with her wildflower identification and she, she knew a lot more about foraging than I realized, but hmm. I never systematically asked her questions and she didn't systematically teach me anything. She did incidentally teach me some common berries like red currant, mulberry. Um, so there was a few things that she, she taught me. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good way. I mean, it, I've seen this a lot with a lot of you know wild food people. Is like it, it's not too hard to learn from books and from experience uh, because you know the plants are there. You just have to ID them, <laughs> basically. But there are all all these like tricks and tips um, that that you learn too from other foragers. Like, I mean, I knew a lot of these plants before reading your books. But then when reading your books, I'd see totally new ways of utilizing these plants, like cattail, for instance. Like I never knew that, like the difference between the, the little shoot that comes out and like the rhizome. <laughs> but there's all, all these all these tricks that, you know, that it's, it's definitely helpful to, to, to learn from other people, too. Yeah, I mean, it's a great shortcut. I didn't have that shortcut. And I think, I think that's part of what feeds into a certain level of confidence is that I had to build the knowledge like slowly over time. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't, when I go out today, I don't start uh, with a random plant and say, I wonder if I can eat that. Um, I'm more looking through ethnographic literature, uh, either native American cultural food traditions or from other parts of the world and saying, Hey, that plant or a close relative is here. But then when it comes to trying it and using it, I'm on my own. There's, there's no one to ask. And there's, you know, there's so many details with each particular plant yeah. of what makes it really work in your everyday life. And those details, each person has to work out on their own. And we're not going to all come to the same conclusions, but we'll come to a lot of similar conclusions. And so any person with experience can really help out a person who's just starting and, and circumvent a lot of that troubleshooting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So what uh, first brought you to writing uh, The Forager's Harvest? You know, at some point, um, well, I started I started leading plant walks when I was 19. Mm. And I realized I, I did it really as a way to try to meet other people. I thought there's got to be other people than me interested in foraging. And there was a few. And the more I met, the more I realized that my plant, uh, the excursions I was organizing ended up being more like classes. <laughs> and 
I ended up teaching people and that's not what I had originally um, envisioned. I wanted like a club of people that forage mm -hmm. together. Yeah. But it ends up that I was teaching everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it, I thought, well, the stuff people want to know, uh, it just, I sort of gravitated towards explaining what I knew. And I was reaching the point in my life where I felt like, you know, there's good books out there, but I feel like there's a lot of stuff I know that's not in the books and I want to tell people. And so that sort of set me on that path towards, towards writing. Yeah. You were, you were pretty young when you put them out, right? Like your twenties. Yeah. Well, Forge's Harvest uh, was published when I was 29. I, okay. I started writing it when I was 21 and then took some years off and then kind of finished it up when I was in my late twenties. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's super cool. You know, you knew all that, you know, at a, at a young age. But um, Nature's Garden, I think, is also like a fantastic book. We were just uh, reading that again. And the beginning of the book, it's not like it's not just like a ID book, you know, like there are so many ID books. But um, going through like the, 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 the background necessary to use, utilize the plants. And a lot of the arguments um, that happen in the uh, in 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 popular discourse about wild food, like the uh, the Chris McCandless story, which I thought your your analysis of that was just so incredible. Yeah, Chris McClan what is it? Chris McCandless. McCandless, thank you. Um, for our listeners who don't know, he's the person that went into the wild. Um, that um, happened to starve to death in Alaska, but we were told that he was poisoned by a plant. By yeah. a plant. And um, I just, I didn't realize that, that, uh, that he was actually just malnourished and had starved to death until I read your book, Sam. So thanks for bringing that story to light. And we were wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Well, you know, they're the non-foraging sector of society, which is the, the a large portion. They have this tend to have this very deep fear of edible wild plants and yeah. feed that fear through these fables. And the fable, these poisonous plant fables, take many forms, um, and they all have kind of this moral behind them, which is don't do this stuff; you're gonna die. Yeah, and what I see happening here is, is really we are instinctively worried about unidentified plants the same way we're instinctively scared by uh, canine teeth and growling mammals. Mm -hmm. And we're scared of the dark and loud shrieks in the dark. This is instinctive stuff. But when it comes to our foraging instincts, which, which just says don't eat something if you don't know what it is, we have this built-in fear. When we don't actually forage, that fear comes out in all sorts of weird dysfunctional ways. And it comes out in the form of these rather ridiculous fables that keep getting told. And that story was coming up again and again and again in the workshops that I was leading. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I need, I need to just thoroughly discuss this issue. And um, I didn't even realize how much there was and, and what a rabbit hole it would be when I first started yeah. writing about it. But it's been a cool experience. I've gotten in contact with, um, well, you know, Chris's uh, family 
suggested that I be in this documentary that Animal Planet did about Chris. And uh, I, you know, I ended up meeting a number of people that knew Chris. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I'm going to go to the site where the bus was. It's been removed now. Mm -hmm. And at the same time of year, and I'm going to eat these seeds that supposedly killed him just to try to settle this because John Krakauer is a big name. And when he wants to say some BS, there's always national media that's going to pay attention to it. Um, so I think if I go up there to the bus site and eat the plant that supposedly killed him, I might finally get a little traction with <laughs> the greater media saying, oh, wait, maybe Chris didn't die from eating that. Yeah. Yeah. I've eaten the seeds and I've eaten the roots, but not up there at the bus site. I want to <laughs> stage it so it's hard for people to ignore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people like a good story. And when the story like fits their biases, uh, it's kind of hard to dislodge sometimes. Yes, definitely. And also just wouldn't expect to be lied to about <laughs> like the most important thing in the whole story of like how he died, you know, like. Yeah, kind of threw me yeah, off. And I don't I don't think Chris would have appreciated that either. Hell no. Yeah, that's that's really true. But you bring up some really important points in that discussion, one of which is like the amount of calories you need mm. to survive in the first place. And like the breakdown of those calories, like you can't just eat berries and seeds and like meet your requirements. Like you have to have fat and protein. Um, and a lot of people don't really realize how much how much work it takes to survive, especially on wild food. What people don't realize about their general dietary desires is that the most, uh, the thing we are most attracted to in food is calorie density and digestibility. Mm -hmm. um, the great problem in most of human history economically wasn't finding enough food. It was finding food that was calorie dense enough, or you could say, state this a different way. It was, it was, fitting enough food through your digestive system from which you could extract sufficient calories. And this is a really a more healthy and holistic way to look at human food preferences. And then our feeding behavior makes a lot more sense, but you know, people are virtually obsessed with high density, high calorie density foods to the point where most of us have never had to go even half a day without a highly calorie dense food, but there's all kinds of stuff out there that's edible and it's great food and it might taste great and it's nutritious. But if you don't mix it with some calorie dense food, you're going to eventually die. Hmm. Yeah. It's just, now, not I enough. love asparagus. I mean, I love all sorts of leafy greens, but if you want to subsist on that, you need something high in calories. That could be, you know, that could be fatty meat. It could be nuts, you know, or in the modern world, it's cheese. <laughs> you know, um, you know, your, your potato chips are, oh, your potatoes are okay. But if you want to make them calorie dense enough to really crave them, you got to add the oil. Yeah. It's all That's about how we, how we work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So <clears throat> also in this book, you, you talk a little bit about your wild food diet, which is, you know, very related to this. You did, did it for like uh, 40 days or so on. Um, yep. And and you just like the, like, it's just as <laughs> difficult to do as like a raw vegan diet or something like that. But could, could you, you know, at the time, at that time, I wasn't as prepared as I would be now. Hmm. 
Um, Because I have hickory oil now, Mm. it would be a lot easier. And I have just, I've streamlined different processes. I'm just better at doing the same things I did then. Mm. So, but adding that high calorie oil, like I can take a green shoot vegetable and steam it and then pour some oil on it. And all of a sudden it's way more satisfying and I have quadrupled the calorie content. Hmm. Um, I'm eating what feels like the same sort of substance. And you'll see this all over the world. Traditional people, whether they were agricultural or hunter-gatherer or a mixture of the two, they had these small number of highly calorie-dense foods that were the centerpiece of their food economy. And they got good at those few things. So at the time that I wrote that, I was good at wild rice and I had all the wild rice that I needed. I had all the maple syrup I needed. But today I might have one additional starch and this oil. And that's like all the difference in the world. It's like they don't say your bread. They say your bread and butter. You know, yeah. um, you add the butter and the bread is a lot more satisfying than it was without the butter. True. Yeah. So, so is that, that, that's your core, like, yeah. How much, how much of your calories do you get from the wild? Like on average these days, you know, I don't really keep track, but I'd say it's been really steady at about half for most of my adult life. Wow. That's, that's you know, it's not, it's not hard for me to bring it up to like 80% or so. Um, but then it's just simply that matter of like, labor like I've got stuff I want to do and like do I want to spend that hour and a half making this or cleaning this root vegetable uh you know and um so I guess I'm like anybody else I have things that I want to do and I and I gravitate away like I love hazelnut milk I mean I drink it every day but man you know I spend a lot of time separating hazelnuts when I do that so if I was to switch to a 100% wild food diet I would need to allocate an additional two or three hours a day to food prep beyond what I do now, which is probably an hour and a half or two hours a day. Mm-hmm. And five hours a day in food prep is not undoable, but it is a burden that most people don't want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it is really comforting that I, I, I know that realistically it wouldn't even really be a big problem to switch to eating 100% forage stuff for us now. So, and this is something that you also brought up in the book, this um, sort of, uh, common misperception that uh hunter gatherers only like you worked for two hours a day or something like that yeah that's mostly just white people's fantasy i mean (laughs) that's like european a european fantasy i mean so even in the context in which that statistic came from which was largely a small number of studies of hunter gatherers that was done in the 1960s and and well actually from the 40s through the 60s um they were not including food prep work they were only including the hunting part and the gathering part (laughs) and so if you were repairing your hunting weapons that didn't count if you were cracking nuts that didn't count if you were building a fire to cook something that didn't count um and so it really wasn't a realistic um uh figure to begin with and and that being said none of the actual figures were as low as two hours the lowest figures that any study came up with were a little more than two hours. If you'd averaged all them, you would have got maybe three and a half hours or three hours. And, and then when you add in the food preparation work, now you're looking at five hours a day. 
And that seems pretty reasonable yeah. in terms of my experience and the experience of other people trying to live off the land in whatever capacity. So it, it's just kind of a fantasy that people that aren't doing it have, but when they start doing it, they realize it doesn't really work that way. Yeah. I think the other thing you noted was that that's in a tropical climate, which is a lot more lenient in the, you know, in certain ways than being up in the North where you have winter. Yeah. Well, the only way in which the tropical climates are more lenient is they don't require as much building of shelter mm. and uh, uh, clothing. But as far as food acquisition, the labor invested in food acquisition and food processing, temperate climates are generally a lot better than tropical climates, which is huh. something that people find counterintuitive. But that's an argument that you'll find in print from me someday. I've been kind of carefully working out this argument. Uh, it's pretty well known, but I'm, I'm trying to explain why this is, why our temperate climates, and not just temperate, but seasonal climates, right? So, so huh. um uh, tropical seasonal climates have a lot more food than less seasonal tropical climates. So if there's a dry season and a wet season, there's way more food in those environments than if it's, you know, a steady growing season year round. So, well, I mean, do you mind um, teasing out a little bit about why that is? Yeah, sure. If there is no dormant season, there is no purpose for a storage organ. Ah. So, so, <laughs> so a seasonal tropical climates essentially almost eliminates root vegetables. There are other kinds of storage organs, but they're not as ecologically important in those climates. And, and so the other factor that creates food is disturbance. Um, and tropical aseasonal rainforests are probably the least disturbed uh, forest. They're definitely the least disturbed forested landscape in the world. Um, and there are very few storms that are gonna knock over trees and there are virtually no fires in these tropical rainforests. And those events create the need for propagation, which creates a need for both fruit and seeds. Um, and then when you eliminate seasonality, you also eliminate extremely fast growth spurts, which ah. creates vegetables, right? So right. in New York, in your, in your hardwood forest, you have somewhere in New York state, you don't have as much yearly production as you would have say in somewhere in the Amazon basin. However, in your five month growing season, you do have about 70% the production that in the Amazon would have in a 12 month growing season. So the plants during your growing season are actually growing way faster. And that fast growth is what actually results in foods for human beings because the fast growth creates more tender growth and less uh, chemically dense uh, you know, vegetation. So there's a whole bunch of factors that work together to make temperate climates and seasonal tropical or subtropical tropical climates more food rich than less seasonal uh, tropical environments. And then the final one is soil fertility. Mm. Um, soils tend to be fertile, more fertile in temperate climates, which for a number of reasons, and that also promotes fast growth and high nitrogen growth. So there's a, there's a somewhat complicated rundown of a question that we don't think about much, which is how is wild food distributed around the world and why? Mm. Yeah. Interesting. That is really interesting. And then I guess also like with the, the seasons, you have different times for different things. Like you, you won't be, you know, uh, harvesting corn in February or March, but you can tap maple trees, you know, and there's nothing really growing above the ground, but you can still be harvesting something. 
And I guess that goes yes. fishing in the winter, hunting in the winter. Seasonality creates a concentration and a predictability. So mm, yeah. um, we see this even in the northern United States, wild rice ripens in a very brief period of time, and you know when it's going to ripen. If you go to Florida where they do have wild rice, it's really hard to predict when it's going to ripen, and it can ripen in a really patchy manner that's hard. So it's hard to focus on, and it's hard to be labor efficient about. And that's true with a lot of tropical crops. Um, it can be really hard to plan your activities in a labor efficient way around those foods. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas up here, it's like now, now it's maple, maple time. And then now it's ramps and spring greens. And then now it's time to plant. And, you know, there's always, there's always something that you've got to be doing. <laughs> if you want to harvest. So um, to get back to how much calories it takes to survive. Um, what are your, your core, uh, plants? Like what, what are your, your core sources of calories that you said, uh, wild rice, um, hickory oil and like acorns or are there others maple syrup? So, uh, so wild rice, maple syrup or maple sugar, um, and hickory oil are probably the three most calorie wise, the three most important wild foods in our household diet. Mm. Um, we don't eat as much acorns as I would like simply because of the labor efficiency. And also because, um, I have a family of five now and I don't have room in my house for all my acorn processing equipment. I'm actually wow. building an addition. We're calling it the acorn edition. So we have more room Aww. to process nuts in the house. Um, so I don't eat as many acorns as I used to. Um, we eat a lot of hickory nuts, not just the oil, but you know, eating hickory nuts as shelled out and in the form of hickory milk. Um, and then we have other things that we eat that are great foods, but the availability is limited. Uh, so, so Wapato, um, I yeah. don't live next to a good Wapato area, but if I have the, the time and I can put a few days, we might eat a lot of Wapato one year, um, you know, because I love it and it's a good, it's a good calorie dense starch food. Um, it's pretty labor efficient, not as labor efficient as something like hickory oil or wild rice. Um, and then if it's a bumper crop of hazelnuts, we will get a lot of hazelnuts. Um, you know, for berries, we like to put up 80 to 100 gallons of, of berries each year. But which berry depends on how they crop. Last mm -hmm. year, we didn't yeah. pick any blueberries. We picked wow. a ton of raspberries, black raspberries and blackberries last year. Yeah. Uh, but the year before, we picked 85 gallons of blueberries. So I don't always know what it's going to be that we pick a ton of, but we, we like to pick about hundred gallons of berries every year. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We don't really have access to a wild rice around us. Um, whereas like in Wisconsin, you know, that's like the lake capital of the world or something. <laughs> Got a lot. Um, but I guess it, you know, it depends on where, where you are and what you have access to, but the, um, the hickory oil seems like a game changer. Um, and I've heard that you use, uh, bitter nut hickories too. Like, um, so how do you, how do you, uh, press the oil and like what, what species do you use? So, um, you can make good hickory oil from any of our hickories. Okay. Um, the, the, the beauty of the bitter nut hickory is that, um, well, I'll rephrase that a little bit. Um, we focus on bitter nut hickory because it has the highest amount of oil per volume of nuts. 
Mm. It's the most productive in terms of nuts per tree or nuts per unit of area. Uh, it's the most common hickory. And the shell ratio is low. So a shagbark hickory is about 60% shell, 40% kernel on a really good one. Yeah. Often they're 70% shell, 30% kernel. Yeah. Um, if I'm going to put shagbarks through my oil press, I have to remove some of that shell. Like I need to get like 10, 20% of that shell out for it to even run through my press. Uh -huh. uh, and then that's extra labor of step, step and a five gallon bucket of hickory. I'm sorry, a five gallon bucket of shag bark is only going to yield two thirds the amount of oil as a five gallon bucket of bitter nut. Hmm. Um, and the oil is not better from shag bark. Tannin is not oil soluble. There is, is no quality difference between the bitter nut and the other hickory oils. So I pressed a number of the species. It's just bitter nut is the one that works out. And there, we know that there was a robust hickory oil tradition by Native Americans in this country. And this was, I'd argue that hickory oil is probably the most important food over the last 8,000 years in Eastern North America, period. More important than mm. corn. Um, wow. Now, in the last 1,500 years, as corn became more important, it probably did outweigh hickory nuts and hickory oil particularly. But I believe that... Um, you know, before corn came in, it was it was it was the most important piece in, in, in the food economy in most of eastern North America. And archaeologically, we don't have good answers because most archaeologists do not separate the species of hickory being used. Hmm. Um, and they have not been receptive to even anybody to even letting me look at, you know, nut shell collections. But from the one archaeologist I know of that has separated nut shells in northern New England, Nancy Ash Sadell, she had uh, more than double the amount of bitternut shell as shagbark shell. And that's, and there's about almost double the amount of calories per unit of shell there. So that suggests four times as much bitternut being consumed as shagbark, um, you know, in the assemblages archaeologically that she had. So I believe that bitternut historically was the most important hickory in Eastern North America food-wise and I think we're sitting on the most promising temperate oil crop in the world, uh, a sustainability gold mine and a local food production gold mine. And we're just at kind of the entry point of resurrecting this industry. The productivity per acre is um, going to be fabulous, really yeah. great. And that's with trees, without plowing. Um, and bitternut hickory is perhaps the best canopy cover that you could have for ramps. Ah. So you could have a two crop system that's okay. tree crop and an herbaceous crop that don't interfere with each other. I just think that it's, um, you know, we're, we have lost so much knowledge um, and we have lost so many wonderful native American food traditions. We need to all work together to resurrect these and to reapply these principles and ideas because there's, there's something really promising waiting. Yeah. So the, the, the thing in my mind that jumps out for hickories though, is the time it takes for them to start bearing. Do you, do you know how long it would take like for the bitter nuts to, you know, to become mature enough to, to bear significantly? I have um, eight-year-old trees in my orchard that are first loaded with flowers this year. So wow. um, that's not very long for a tree crop. Yeah. Um, now, I'm not saying 
you know, but when you have a tree crop, that's just that's just part of dealing with tree yeah. crops, right? Um, yeah, I just all tree crops are, are longer term investment, but yeah. you can take a hay field and you can put your hickory rows in, and you know you can still cut hay or pasture animals in that for the decades until those trees come into full bearing, um, yeah. and then at some point convert the understory over if you want a two a, a two story perennial system. So there's a lot of options there. Mm. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is we already have enough bitternut hickory trees in this country growing right now to wow. supply any conceivable demand for that oil as an edible oil. Just as we have way more maples than we have demand for maple sugar. I mean, it's less than uh, less than half a percent of the tappable maples are tapped in the United States. Wow. Um, we have way more hickories right now than we even need. We could take existing hickory groves and manage them and within five or eight years have really robust, productive, you know, semi-wild hickory orchards. Yeah, that's super, super cool. So how do you press them? So uh, after harvest, it's I have a, a sheller, uh, a husker to take the, the, the green or black husk part off. Mm-hmm. Then I dry them. After I dry them, um, they, they run through a hammer mill just to break them up. And then they go into the oil press from there. So it's a pretty straightforward process. And I'm not keeping any secrets. I've let anybody that's wanted to come and watch my process. Um, I've gotten five other parties interested enough to get a press. Nobody that's selling oil on a very big scale yet. But I, you know, there's, there's a learning curve. There's a lot of little details. Everybody thinks, you know, oh, it's simple. Well, it's simple at, at face value. The basics are simple, but each detail, um, you need to learn enough to be efficient at it. So anybody can understand the concept of picking hickory nuts, but hardly anybody can pick them as fast as I can. Um, right. So you need to build, build up the skill sets, um, you know, f- for each of those things. But um, after they're pressed, so I just have a, 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 an expeller press that's you know, okay. same type of press that would be used for soybean oil, hemp seed oil, linseed oil, any of those things. Um, and I, you know, they're fickle machines and I've learned all the settings and what works for me with hickory oil. And then after that, it's filtered and it's ready to go. Cool. Yeah, that's super cool. So, um, what, what other, what other plants have, uh, you been excited by lately that have kind of like, uh, oh, well, so there's two that have really caught my attention in the last, you know, I go through these like infatuations with the plant for a few yeah. years. Like, so there's one called glade mallow. Okay. This is a native mallow. That's enormous. Um, it'll grow like, you know, seven to eight feet tall. Um, it big leaves, almost like a cow parsnip leaf. And when, when they grow with cow parsnip, people get confused about which is which. Huh. Um, but if you like okra, the leaf stalk is like, I think it tastes better than okra. It's got that slimy okra texture, but I mean, you get this leaf stalk that might be 16 inches long. So it's like a thin rhubarb patio, but with an okra flavor. And it's just, it's a, it's it for anybody that can grow it. I think, why would you ever not want this plant? Cause you put it in, it's going to last like rhubarb. It's going to last the rest of your life. It's super easy to grow. It's native. It's absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Uh, beautiful white flowers in, in mid to late summer. And it's got this really good vegetable. It's going to come back year after year, super labor efficient to use. I mean, what 
what reason would there be not to what reason would there be not to grow this plant mm -hmm. um so i've been kind of i've been uh giving them away to people uh it's a fairly rare plant okay but i have salvaged some from some construction sites in some areas where they're getting mowed and now i'm growing them and i've been you know giving them to, to my friends and stuff slowly i'm trying to build up a seed colony but this is an obscure native edible that's just not known and it's fantastic so i've been really excited about that the last few years um yeah that sounds the list is pretty, is pretty long of the things that i'm i'm infatuated with <laughs> i can imagine that uh, yeah there's another native carrot family plant um which doesn't even have a, a functional common name in english but i call it cherokee swamp potato um mm. and the, the the scientific name is oxypolis rigidire and all of the like dominant euro-american literature says that this is deadly because it looks like water hemlock and it does resemble water hemlock um but you know there's there's ethnographic records of Cherokee using it as a potato-like vegetable. And so I, I trust a couple old Cherokee women over a bunch of white guys with a PhD. So I'm like, I'm going to go try this. And I was like, I'm floored. It's like the best root vegetable I've ever had. I can't get enough of it. I've got some growing out of my orchard here. Um, and I, you know, just like studying it, learning how to grow it um, because it, it has a real specialized natural habitat. But a lot of times those plants, um, all they need is a little bit of disturbance and a little bit of care and they can grow in a much broader, you know, set of conditions than you'd find them in the wild. So, um, that's another mm -hmm. one that's been striking my fancy a lot the last five years or so. We, can you we, say it again? Oxyporus. Oxypolis. Oxypolis. Uh, yeah. O-X-Y-P-O-L-I-S. Okay. And then Rigidior, R-I-G-I-D-I-O-R. Cool. Thank yeah. You. And someone's going to try to crucify me for saying you can eat this. <laughs> but um I think we might like, have some down by the stream. And it It grows yeah. along streams and it likes yeah, it high calcium soil. If you if you've got okay. limestone and you've got a mucky area along a spring-fed stream and you got limestone in New York state, you probably have it. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> sweet. Have to have and it to has it out or something. It has tubers on it, um, and the tuber itself does not look anything like water hemlock tubers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the above ground plant does resemble water hemlock, but it's like anything. <clears throat> I mean, because I've dealt with it for years, I'm like, and I have you know, water hemlock all over my property. It doesn't look like it to me at all, but I also wouldn't send my kids out to gather it. You know, yeah. they haven't, uh, I mean, in a wild place, just because the water hemlock thing um yeah but yeah our, our ancestors were really good with plants and we have the ability to be too yeah for sure yeah and it's really important because i mean like water hemlock is deadly poisonous you know but it is also not that difficult to tell it apart from other plants once you get the eye for it you know once you learn it you know get to know it yeah and i and i and i don't want anybody to jump into any part of foraging they're not comfortable with if you have any slight hint of like hesitation you're not ready to eat it i don't care what it is um and you know but i also really resent when people act like we're pushing the envelope by eating something that might be in the carrot family 
and might resemble something poisonous in the carrot family. Because what are we going to do? Just dismiss all the carrot family? I mean, right. here we have, you know, in Eastern North America, 35 different edible wild plants. And we have two native poisonous members of the carrot family and one or two introduced poisonous members of the carrot family and like 35 good vegetables. Um, I am not ignoring those 35 vegetables. I'm going to learn to differentiate my plant. Right. Yeah. And we have um, the cow parsnip, which I, I love cow parsnip. I think like, I, I like the, the stock of it the best. Um, and it's just such a good vegetable and it's fragrant and it's aromatic. Um, but there's like the, the giant hogweed around now and people get really <laughs> excited about that. You know, it's like, are you sure that's not giant hogweed? <laughs> well, interestingly, I was leading a plant walk in Pennsylvania and we were looking at some cow parsnip. And then a little bit later, we met some employees from the Pennsylvania Department of Conservation or whatever they're titled there. And they were talking to us and like, oh, you know a lot about plants. So we, is that giant hogweed up there by the parking lot? I said, no, that's the native cow parsnip. And they're like, oh, we just sprayed that. Oh, we thought God. it was maybe giant hogweed. And I said, you know, along the Susquehanna River here, because of the Japanese knotweed, the native cow parsnip is almost exterminated. There's not much of it left. It's being outcompeted by the uh, by the Japanese knotweed. And and you know, and you know, this wholesale spraying of anything that looks remotely like giant hogweed is is kind of disturbing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Plus <laughs> giant hogweed is edible. I mean, you can get a rash from cow parsnip. It right. may not be as severe a juice, but I've tested it out. I've put the juice on my arm and held it up in the sun and it'll definitely kill your skin cells and give you blisters, just like the giant hogweed. Um, well, so will parsnip. Yeah, so will parsnip, so will celery, so will angelica, uh, <laughs> and, and so will probably most carrot family plants, but they're just not juicy enough for us to ever have that experience. Ah. Yeah. I think pro one of the problems is like weed whacking without like a sh like sleeves on or something you know and you just get it all over your arms or, or legs that's that yes. could be like the death sentence there <laughs> but it's still yeah. it's not going to kill you yeah, but yeah. so do you have do you have a lot of giant hogweed in your area no i've never seen it out here i've never seen in the in, hudson valley there's some but yeah okay but I, i've seen lots of uh cow parsnip oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah, good that's really common yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and it's big. Yeah. Flavor it, efficient to use. Right. And it's so beautiful too. And the pollinators love it, you know, like they're all over the flowers. It's a it, you know, these wild perennial vegetables, like native perennial vegetables, I think are just so there's so many of them and they're so good. And they're kind of been overlooked by the permaculture community. Um as of late. I mean, I think it's starting to come around a little more, like Sochan, I think is getting more traction. And uh, some of those other perennial vegetables, but there, there's, I mean, like I've never heard of the oxypolis uh, before, and that seems amazing. You know, you're you're totally right. I, I mean, I mean, I I agree that the permaculture community um, has has not dug deep enough into native North American food plants, and part of that's because I mean, this is the, this is the colonial hangover. We tried yeah. to destroy this knowledge. Um, you know, Europeans try to destroy this knowledge and now we're realizing we want this knowledge back. And there's people who always wanted this knowledge. Um, I mean, if it wasn't for the small number of Cherokee that held out in 
the you know the Smoky Mountains region uh, and didn't leave on the Trail of Tears, we might not even know that that oxypolis was edible. And there are still people who are telling me, no, that's deadly. And I'm like, I'll sit down and serve it to my children, and like, we love it. Um, but so it, it gives me it gives me a chuckle there. But again, that's the absurd hangover from colonialism. This idea that black nightshade is poisonous is also yeah. part of that colonial hangover. And, right. um, you know, so food, ironically, is our last frontier. Most areas of science, we actually are, we're inquisitive about. But with, with food, we have this inherent fear of unfamiliar foods, which makes sense, you know, evolutionarily. But it also, we have to recognize that inherent fear and then look past it and, and be willing to, to accept food traditions that we didn't grow up with. Yeah. So have you found effective ways of disarming that fear in people, you know, over your years of trying to convince them that wild, certain wild foods are safe to eat? Yeah. You eat it in front of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And you event event and you don't, you don't BS, you know, right. Mm -hmm. Like, like you don't pretend to like something that's not good. If I tell something, somebody, something is really good. I want to be able to hand it to them and have them say, you're right. Like I want to understate it. Like, and some people that see me like bragging about say a thistle stock are like, whatever, that can't be good. And then they try and they're like, holy cow. Because a lot of people, they don't even realize, for example, that with cultivated vegetables, we're getting, we're getting like the lower echelon of vegetables. You know, it's, it wild vegetables in general are so much better in quality than cultivated vegetables. They tend to be more tender. They tend to have milder flavors. You know, uh, the, the other side of that is the seasons are shorter and it's harder to get them at the right time, but you know, you can, you can make such good food and that will convert people. Um, and I often like to use an ethnic connection. So rather than this is just some strange thing, I might say with Mitsuba or Cryptotania canadensis to say, this is popular in Japanese cooking. Right. And so for somebody that may have been to a Japanese restaurant, uh, uh, somebody that didn't grow up eating Japanese food, but they've been to a Japanese restaurant a few times. When I say that, all of a sudden, they've got a personal connection to that plant's potential safety, okay. like thinking, oh, I might have eaten that in a soup at a Japanese restaurant. And even mm-hmm. if they haven't been there, they can at least imagine going to a Japanese restaurant. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden, it's not so mystical. It's not so wild. It's not so untouchable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that honewort is also really good. It's like such a good tasting vegetable. Uh, is it the same species as the one they use in Japan? I've heard d- differing you know, ideas about that. Well, you know, taxonomists have argued for a hundred years, whether it's the same or really closely related. But what I can tell you is that they're very, very similar and taste very, very similar. And that's been told to me by people who have been in Japan, eating it in Japan and been here eating it here. I haven't been to Japan to eat it, but I've looked at photos yeah, and you know, there seems to be subtle differences, but they're really, really similar. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Japan thing is also, I think really good because they have such a healthy culture of, um, well, like perennial vegetables and wild vegetables. Like they have that whole like mountain vegetable thing, you know, where like they, they really, Mm -hmm. they, they exalt those, uh, wild foods that, (laughs) you know, have such a good flavor, but only have a really short, season and are medicinal off often too. 
Yeah, there's a really interesting book in, that just came out in English about Japanese foraging traditions um, by somebody, somebody named Winifred Bird. I don't know if you've seen it. I forget the title mm. right now, um, but that really was a, a cool dive into that, that part of Japanese uh, food tradition. Yeah, even just going to like an Asian market, um, you know, you see all like Chinese mountain yam or uh, or even just the and burdock burdock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we really would do well to, to emulate that better here. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's a similar I mean, the eastern U.S. is a similar um, climate to like to China, at least. Um, and I, I feel like there's I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of similarities too so it's it's a it'd be a good culture to emulate in some ways for sure yeah very much so and and we ethnographically know a lot more about the foods eaten in china the wild foods of china than stuff from eastern north america so right. we have all these native mallows which are presumably edible but which we don't have any record of native americans eating them because you know Europeans thought of this whole idea of ethnography, not, you know, ethnobotany, not until the 1890s or so. And by, by that time, the food traditions were, a lot of them were partially defunct. So a lot of the more obscure plants, nobody knew anymore in, in, in Eastern North America. Um, but you can look to similar relatives in China. So a good example of this is the sanicles, uh, the genus Sanicula. And again, a lot of white people literature says these are poisonous. Um, but if you look in China and Korea, the multiple sanicles were eaten. In Europe, they were eaten. In Western North America, they were eaten. So <laughs> you can't tell me that the sanicles in Eastern North America are poisonous. And you especially can't tell me now because I've been eating them for years. I've eaten <laughs> all the species in North America many times. I've probably eaten sanicle at least 40 times this year. Um, and, you know, it's like, it's like honewort with a little bit of cilantro flavor. It's not quite as good as homework, but it's almost as good if you get it when it's at, at the right young stage. I'm like, here's another great edible that's like, you know, kind of lost in our wild food literature. Yeah. Well, there, and there's so, there's so many like wonderful vegetables too. It's like almost more than you can ever eat. <laughs> yeah. You know, in um, the Mediterranean region, there's been a, a lot of ethnobotanical work interviewing just rural wives that do a lot of cooking and still collect a lot of wild greens. And a lot of these villages, they find like the, the average woman knows like 70 different edible greens that she collects wow. or, you know, and, and the ones that are like better at it, more well-versed might know like 95 to 110 different wild greens that accessible, just walking distance from her house. And, yeah. uh, We've got the same situation here. It's almost mind boggling. But again, we are smart creatures. Our brains are meant to categorize and memorize and, yeah. and you know, utilize these big bodies of information. So, so it's mind boggling before you get into it, but eventually it all just kind of falls yeah. into line. Well, it's like learning like all the sports players and their stats, you know, like <laughs> so many men know all like all these different football players and like, all their stats from every single game, you know, and their histories and what college right. they came from and right. what teams they used to play for. Yeah. Yeah. So you, if you have that capacity, you have the capacity to learn about anything, mm -hmm. you know, right. Especially. Yep. <laughs> but ha have you um, in your career in, in uh, 
wild food education noticed the a change in in the culture like it seems like it's definitely a lot more popular now but there's been um pretty dramatic changes when i started teaching um dating myself here but the fear of y2k was a huge driver of people in wild food classes when i started um and the um in, in even after that so there was a little bit more of a survivalist tilt to it and yeah. there was a lot of um fundamentalist christians preparing for this like coming end of the world um and i don't get a lot of that um in my classes anymore a little bit of both of those but it's more of just people just really want to reconnect and eat better food and it's more of uh, uh, built on excitement rather than fear. So yeah. I feel like the interest has grown healthier and more robust. And I think it's an outgrowth of just kind of the slow food trend um, and good people putting good information out there that makes that makes the activity more accessible and, and seem less daunting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, that's a really good point. You know, people coming into it from excitement an inspiration rather than, than fear. Um, Cause that definitely, it, it probably means you'll, you'll really absorb the information better coming from a place of like interest in it. Yeah. You know, very much. Um, I can, I can see, I could see that when I was getting a lot of people that were afraid of an EMP bomb causing civilization collapse and they wanted to be prepared for that. Those people had trouble remembering from class to class. But the people that were just excited and, and just into it because they thought it was fun, those people would come from class to class. And not only did they remember what I taught in the previous class, but they had learned six new things in between. So, yeah, as people are getting more into wild foods and things like that, how do you recommend um, folks go about being like conservationists and not over harvesting? You know, that's a, that's a great question, but my answer to that is, um, you know, there's a lot of specific answers relating to specific locations and specific plants. Right. Um, but as a broad general answer, I'll say that, um, when you get your hands out there on the plants and in the dirt and, and you're, and you're eating that, you're experiencing that in the most fundamental way, you experience this instinctive gratitude. And that gratitude is as real and as fundamental and as instinctive as fear of the dark or fear of heights or any of these other things. It's a survival instinct. Mm. Gratitude was necessary for our ancestors because it led them into positive relationships, both conservation, but beyond conservation, tending the wild landscapes that they lived in. Um, The gratitude creates that. So if I can get somebody out there among the plants and get them eating plants, they will learn and their heart will be in the right place and they will make generally the right decisions. So I tell people, I trust you. I know your heart is in the right place. And I, even if you don't want to care, you're going to start caring. The more you forage, the more you'll care. And history has shown that the people who eat the plants are the people who tend, who tend the plants, who care for the plants. They are the ones who stick up for those plants. And um, that's what I've seen in my experience. That's what, you know, traditional cultures all around the world tell us. And that makes a lot of sense. 
So I, I'm going to trust people's intuitions and their hearts here. And they get out and do it. They're going to make the best decisions. Very cool. Good answer. Yeah. And you know what? If they make a mistake, that's okay because nature is resilient and we, sh we need to observe our mistakes and then say, Hey, I, I'm going to do that differently next time. I need, I'm, I need to compensate for that mistake. Now I screwed up. Yeah. Um, and you know, our mistakes are not utterly destructive. You know, I was out. If you have time for a little anecdote, there's a sure. place where I collect, uh, I, I collect watercress and I collect morels. I don't ever dig ramps there. It's a beautiful area with a lot of ramps, but there's a family that's been collecting ramps there for 13 years illegally. And I've been trying to catch them. Well, I actually caught them just like a couple weeks ago. Wow. And it was a super nice family, three generations, seven people. There was, you know, uh, grandparents, parents, and children. They had like over a hundred pounds of ramp bulbs. And I was angry and I talked to them a little bit, you know, and I grew less and less angry the more I talked to them. And I had made assumptions that they didn't, they were just didn't really care a lot, but they did care a lot. And they've been coming there for a long time and probably longer than I've been coming there. And I had to admit, they said, there's still a lot of ramps here. And I had to admit there was. So, okay, it wasn't legal what they were doing, but, you know, they cared about their place. And this is a, a, a chunk of public land. And what really struck me after that conversation was that our Department of Natural Resources cleared 20 acres of floodplain forest and shrubland to make a gigantic lawn to make this accessible for trout fishermen. Huh. And they cleared acres of ramps wow. they cleared acres of spring beauty and and toothwort and trout lily and mm -hmm. water leaf and all these things and wood nettle they cleared 20 acres of it and made a lawn and there's still ramps trying you know they're coming up in yeah. that lawn they're not doing so well but it's like and they brought they brought bulldozers in they brought in daylilies into this area that was like vibrant native floodplain forest oh, and i'm like these foragers are making the right decisions. These non-foragers with the power made this horrible, destructive decision. Right. Um, so I'm siding with the foragers here. Yeah. And, and you bring up a, a sort of a hot button issue there with the ramps, because seems like lately um, people are getting really heated about that, that topic um, with, you know, and it, it makes sense too, because like in a lot of places they are getting over harvested, um, but then there are also places that they, aren't getting over harvested and you get people on, on the internet who are like bullying other people because they're harvesting the bulbs. And it's like, well, you know, you can, you can harvest the bulbs if, if you have enough ramps, <laughs> but you can't even say that sometimes. Um, but what, what are your, uh, what are your thoughts on ramps and like how sustainable they are to harvest? Well, I don't know if you know this, but I have a 17 year ramp research project. that's still running. Um, and I, um, I've been having trouble, uh, figuring out where I'm going to, and how I'm going to publish my data. Um, but so this idea that ramps can't be sustainably harvested was largely created by a 1992 or 93 article by two researchers out of Quebec, uh, Nault and Gagnon were their names. And, um, they designed a study to show no reproduction of ramps because they wanted to basically make an argument that, that it should be made illegal. Harvesting ramps should be made illegal. Um, it's really easy to design a study to show no reproduction. You just take a crowded area and you and you monitor the population. And guess what? It doesn't get fuller than full. If it's full, it won't get more full. 
You know, that's just how nature works. Anybody with common sense should know that, much less mm. professional ecologists. And somehow the study got published um, uh, despite the fact that peer review should have said, wait a second, this is nonsense. And I, I'm, I'm, um, these are fighting words I'm saying here, um, but this was garbage science. Yeah. And uh, the garbage science has taken over. And now people will just say they've done studies. They've done studies. Well, read the damn study, people. It's a bullshit study. Um, and furthermore, they didn't show as little reproduction as they wanted. So they inserted an imaginary 25% mortality that they imagined would happen when you harvest ramps. Um, my study, I'm a, I can summarize the data here. When you get to lower densities of anything in proper habitat, then the reproductive rate increases. We put 20, or sorry, we put 85 bulbs into an area of sugar maple forest in my sugar bush that had the particular area had no ramps, but it seemed to be good ramp growing conditions. In 2007, we've been monitoring them now. This is the 16th, 15th growing season, depending on how you figure it. Um, and uh, I think it's 2000, it's 2,800 and some bulbs. It, it, it's a 3,350% increase in, in uh, 15 growing seasons. Wow. Um, and, and that's not in an ideal ramp site. It's what I could consider an average ramp site. Um, I think a, a reasonable harvest of ramps in, in, in good growing conditions for ramps or, or um, is about, you can harvest about 50% every five or six years sustainably. Uh -huh. um, and that's a lot of ramps. So I recently interviewed a farmer. Uh, he harvests five, he sells five to 10,000 pounds a year of ramps. Um, he's been doing this for 30 36 years, I think 38 years um, on his property. He has more ramps than he had when he started. He's expanded his acreage, but his original acreage is still vibrant. Um, and they harvest uh, about a thousand pounds per acre every five years. And then they come back five years and, and do it again. Um, so, and that's whole bulbs. Yeah. Um, this can be done sustainably. The, 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 uh, the unsustainable ramp harvesting is mostly being done by small personal collectors on small public lands in and around large urban areas. Right. It's affecting probably less than one-tenth of a percent of the ramp acreage in North America. Uh, the actual acreage of ramps is expanding and has been for about a century. So we've had you know, pretty significant reforestation in almost all of Eastern North America since the peak deforestation that was reached about 1900 or so. And um, ramps have been increasing, not decreasing for the last hundred years. So um, people should do it sustainably, but people should do it. Yeah. Okay. You can harvest, you can harvest leaves sustainably, but you can also harvest bulbs sustainably. But you should do either one, you should do it sustainably. So some people say, oh, the area where I harvest, there's not a lot of ramps and they're not thriving. So I can't harvest bulbs. And I'll say, well, then you shouldn't harvest leaves either. If it's right. not sustainable to harvest, it's not sustainable to harvest. If you harvest leaves, they won't fruit or flower or it'll drastically reduce that bulb expansion only happens or usually happens with flowering. So a bulb usually only divides after it blooms. Mm -hmm. So increasing blooming will also increase bulb division. Um, in either case, take care of your ramp patches, you know, th uh, thin out competing vegetation that's not native or that's going to you know, prevent them from reproducing um, and they can withstand significant harvest. Yeah. That's been my experience too. I mean, not, not nearly as long as you, but I, I've, I see acres and acres of ramps, you know, and 10% every 10 years, or even if, if you, even if you're just harvesting 10% every 10 years, that's still like hundreds of pounds <laughs> from an acre. Right. 
And that's super conservative. Right. I mean, 10% <laughs> every 10 years is like people, if people didn't see the dig marks a few months later, they would never know ramps had been harvested. I yep. mean, so, so I'm expanding my ramp acreage because we have an area that's dominated by sugar maple now, but it was hemlock. And the hemlock was cut out for a tannery about 70 years ago. So the ramps haven't colonized this area yet. And so we are, you know, bringing the ramps in by transplanting bulbs. We took out 3,000 some bulbs from a small area. We took out about 60 or 70% of the ramps. And two years later, an astute eye can tell, but the average person wouldn't even be able to tell. Yeah. In four years, nobody would even know that we right. took them out. Yeah. Yeah, they grow. They grow back. They grow. They grow really. Yeah, they're, they're plants and they, they grow. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. The, it, it, like literally, a study was done to try to prove that ramps don't grow. At face value, if you have any common sense, you can recognize that as bullshit. But yeah. I have, I have a control plot where I just monitor a really thick patch patch of ramps. And guess what? There's not any more. Monitor them for years. There's no more because you can't get fuller than full. It works with a five gallon bucket under a dripping faucet too. Like once it's full, no matter <laughs> as it's dripping, it's gonna just be full. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. <laughs> so, uh, Samuel, thank you for that. I think that's a really important study that you're doing, um, and I hope that people, you know, look, you know, listen to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's good, not good to over harvest for sure, but it's also not good to like bully other people on the internet just because you're misinformed, <laughs> you know? So, um, I, w- well, this has been an amazing conversation. It's been really great to, to listen, uh, to your, to your information, your information, your knowledge, your experience. Um, I'm excited about some of these new plants that you've, uh, that you've told me about yeah. blade mallow and oxypolis. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Well, thanks for having the show. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. It's, it's been honored to speak to you folks. Thank well, you. Likewise. I mean, this has been a kind of like, you know, you've been a kind of a hero of mine over the years. So mm-hmm. it's been really cool. Well, cool. I don't want to be a hero, though. I just want to be friends. Okay. Yeah, well, that's good. That's, <laughs> that's good, too. All right. Well, thanks, Sam. Enjoy the rest of your day. Hey.